If you strip out what companies are doing and take out the acronyms like ESG, it's really about moving from tunnel vision to lateral vision, about looking at externalities like the environment, about recognizing that you need to have lateral vision for risk management. And at the end of the day, that's kind of what anthropology is all about, a desire to have lateral vision and to see things in context to look at the cultural patterns and the consequences of what people are doing. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Jillian Tett. Jillian is chair of the editorial board and editor-at-large U.S. of the Financial Times. She writes weekly columns covering a range of economic, financial, political, and social issues. In 2014, she was named Columnist of the Year in the British Press Awards and was the first recipient of the Royal Anthropological Institute Marsh Award. Jillian's past roles at the FT have included U.S. Managing Editor, Assistant Editor, Capital Markets Editor, Deputy Editor of the Lex Column, Tokyo Bureau Chief, and a reporter in Russia and Brussels. She received a PhD in social anthropology from Cambridge University and began her early career as an anthropologist in Soviet Tajikistan. Her latest book, which is terrific, tracks her lifelong journey and is entitled Anthrovision, A New Way to See in Business and Life. Jillian, welcome to the podcast. I've been a reader and an admirer of your work at the FT for years now, and I've been the interviewee with you on a number of times. So I'm really looking forward to switching things up and interviewing you for once. So let's start right in. Before you were a star journalist at the FT, you were an anthropologist, having received your PhD from Cambridge. What drew you to anthropology? Well, I think this is a chance for you, Secretary Paulson, to have your revenge on me after all our conversations over the years, because this is where you get a chance to chuck the questions back at me, call it divine retribution. I became an anthropologist for the same reason that many people become journalists, because I was fundamentally curious about how the world worked. I was gripped by a desire for adventure, for travel, to collide with the unexpected and to really just go out and encounter people who are different from me just to try and understand it. And it really was as simple as that. Journalism at its best is gripped by the same imperative, but I didn't know when I became an anthropologist that I would end up becoming a journalist too. So you went from studying marriage rituals in Tajikistan as a social anthropologist to writing about finance and global markets in the FT. And I think you've touched on this, that there's a common thread between the two, but why did you make the transition to journalism? And was it a difficult uh, shift or an easy shift? Well, I think that's a polite way of asking a question that I've often had, which is how come you're so totally weird? Because, you know, certainly back in the days when I used to come and interview you or others on Wall Street and in Washington, the presumption was that if a financial journalist had a PhD, it must be in economics or finance or something quantitative like astrophysics. 
You know, the idea of looking at something hippy-dippy and soft like cultural anthropology, let alone um, based on research done in a place like Tajikistan, looking at marriage rituals, and that was my research topic, seemed to be completely irrelevant to Wall Street or Washington. But the truth is that we're all human. And humans are always shaped by essentially, you know, cultural patterns, social allegiances, boundaries, by complex rituals and ceremonies and use of space and cultural maps of the world that seem totally normal and natural to them, but pretty weird to everyone else. So exactly the same tools and intellectual skills that I use to deconstruct marriage rituals can be applied to investment banking conferences, to the way that Congress works, to the way that a trading floor works, to the way that most businesses work today. So that's what I spent my career trying to do. You know, it's fascinating because when, when you think about it, I just got back from a, a trip in South Africa with my family. And it'd be very interesting to explain to people in some of the villages we visited why in the United States people so often wore a coat and a tie. Why, why would you why would you do that? Put a tie around your neck, you know, and uh, a coat. But it's, uh, it, I guess it's part of our ritual. So well, I think you raise a good point there because people often say, well, anthropology is a bit like an academic version of Indiana Jones. You know, you get these uh, people who go off and study far-flung tribes and villages and places like the Amazon and dig up bones or look at rituals that seem very exotic to other people. And the reality is that everybody seems exotic to somebody else. And anthropology recognizes that. And these days, anthropologists are as likely, if not more likely, to be looking at what happens inside an Amazon warehouse or the Amazon company as anything in the Amazon jungle. And at a time when we need, when we're so divided as a nation and as a world, and we need ways to bring people together, there's gotta be a real role for anthropology. So this brings us to your new book, Anthrovision. So tell us why you wrote the book and what were you trying to achieve? Well, I wrote the book really to try and explain to people why I've had this bizarre life going from looking at Tajik wedding rituals to looking at Wall Street and Washington and the city of London and Tokyo, why I did that, but also more importantly, why and how I think this helped inform my work as a journalist, helping me to see the 2008 financial crisis, helping to forecast the rise of tech clash, sustainability, the rise of Donald Trump, things like that. But also one of the key messages in my book is that anthropology has a set of ideas that can be useful to anybody, whether they're working in finance, law, tech, medicine, policymaking. And these ideas, I passionately believe, are very badly needed now, as we hopefully start to come out of the pandemic, or at least grapple with the challenges actually unleashed by COVID-19. And of course, the other big global problem, which is climate change. So go back to the book uh, for, for a minute. How long did it take you to write this book? Well, it technically took me six, seven months during the lockdown of 2020, but it actually took a lifetime, to be honest, because I've been collecting these ideas for a very long time and wanting to write about them. And it really was the pandemic that I thought provided the perfect moment to do that. 
not just in terms of being locked down at home, but also because the message is, I think, is so timely for right now. Yeah, to write a book, though, and even though you'd written down ideas for most of your career, to write a book in six or seven months is quite an accomplishment. I, you know, I've written a few books and I found it to be a painful process, but it's, it's really a great feeling when you hold it in your hand at the end, isn't it? And it's a finished product. Well, it is because, you know, I, I basically handle words for a living. You spend your life handling money and power. Um, so I probably have more practice than you in that, yeah. but it was still a very, very, very painful process. So let's go back to anthropology for a minute. Why do you think, given what you've just told us, that anthropology doesn't have the same hold in our political conversations as other social sciences, like, say, economics or history? I think there are two reasons why anthropology hasn't been quite so prominent. One is that, you know, we're shaped by a world where policymakers tend to look at power and money and use hard quantitative tools to do that. In the last 50 years, we've seen the rise of computers, which have really put the quantitative analysis on center stage in the eyes of most people. And we've seen a lot of tools develop like balance sheets, big data sets, economic models, which give the illusion of tremendous amount of accuracy and usefulness when you employ them to navigate the world. At the same time, anthropologists who work with soft sciences and often offer a very different perspective have been incredibly bad at hustling to put their ideas mainstream. That's partly because a type of character or personality of someone who's attracted to anthropology tends to be more focused on listening and observing and making yourself invisible rather than grabbing the microphone and standing center stage, which is you know, charming, but makes them rather bad at hustling in public. Anthropologists tend to be often racked with self-doubt and quite humble because they really try to understand how other people think and they see life in shades of gray, not black and white which is probably a very accurate way to see life. But again, it's hard to summarize in PowerPoints. Anthropologists have often been focused on academic work and not very good at actually collaborating with outsiders, partly because they're often very cynical about money and power. And so they don't necessarily fit easily into companies or government agencies. So you take all those points together. And I think sadly, anthropology has been very much excluded from mainstream debate compared to economics, which is a discipline where the adherents don't have any problems with hustling to be in the center and operating levers of power and money. But that's also a great opportunity because people can really benefit by using anthropology ideas. And in just the same way that many people woke up and realized the wisdom of taking ideas from academic psychology books like Danny Kahneman's wonderful Thinking Fast and Slow. Even if you're not an academic psychologist, you can use those ideas. In the same way, I'm arguing that people can use the ideas in anthropology to great effect in all kinds of spheres of life. You know, Jillian, one thing that really resonates with me is this. Technology, there's no doubt, it made huge advances in everything we do. It makes us more productive. But as I see it, most of the major problems and issues we deal with today are people issues. You know, that you can't go off with a computer and solve the problem. It's a people issue. And so often I see young people that are working with me. And if there's a problem with someone else, and I say, well, have you talked it through with them? 
Well, I sent him an email or I sent him a text and I say, get on the phone and email and text doesn't do it or go see them. So I think your focus, and I know anthropology is much more than that, but your focus on people issues and understanding people is critically important today. Now, your book is really pretty entertaining and you filled it with some anthropologically informed answers to a whole range of interesting questions. Here's one that I found particularly interesting. Why do so many normally clean shaven men grow beards during the pandemic? You know, that was something that perplexed me. You know, I grow a beard whenever I'm lazy and I don't shave for several days, but to grow a beard and groom it regularly with all kinds of clippers and it's a fashion statement, you know, I just plain didn't get it. So talk a bit about that. Well, that's a question I kept wondering because I saw all of these professional men suddenly sporting beards during the early days of the pandemic. And so I started asking them why, and they'd say things like, well, I don't need to have a you know, clean shaven face because I'm not going to the office, or I haven't got you know, time at home to shave. And neither of those explanations really made sense because actually, if you're not going to the office and your only window on the world professionally with colleagues is a Zoom screen, that actually your face matters more, not less, because people see it in close up. And the idea people didn't have time to shave anymore, couldn't be bothered, was kind of rubbish because actually people were having more time at home and it took like, you know, it was easier to get to the bathroom and to a razor. So I began to think, in fact, there was a better way of framing what was going on, which comes from an anthropology concept of liminality, the liminal moment. This comes from anthropologists who worked in Africa and elsewhere who say that in many societies around the world, when a person is going through a transition, say going from childhood to adulthood, or a society is going through a transition, say going from one year to the next at new year, or a sort of national transition becoming independent, there's kind of a limbo moment when you're kind of betwixt and between. And people often, uh, or societies often develop cultural practices to signal the fact that this is kind of a weird moment set apart from normal life. And often the normal symbol would simply turned upside down completely to sim symbolize that difference. And there's two ways of looking at it. You can either call it a limbo moment, as I just did, or you can call it liminality, because liminality comes from the Latin limens, meaning doorway. And it's a transition from one thing to another. It can be a process of renewal or rebirth and so I think that what was going on was that by sporting beards, people were indicating this is kind of weird. These are cultural signals to show this is a moment set apart. And it's kind of a liminal moment transitioning to something else. And my main point in saying that is that actually, yes, it's kind of interesting as a kind of explanation and kind of did you know kind of thing. But there was a very practical implication of that, which is that if only companies and governments had seized on this idea of liminality from anthropology and said to the populations, this isn't just dead time or scary wasted limbo time. It's actually a doorway, a transition to a new time to maybe even building back better. I think it would have sounded much more encouraging. And those beards in a funny kind of way were not just a reflection of panic and terror, but also in a funny kind of way, hope too. That's a nice way of looking at it. So you didn't grow a beard at all? You haven't been tempted to have a spread? Yeah, I would grow a partial beard if I didn't feel like shaving for a while. But usually when I was doing something or a speaking engagement, I would shave. 
that's just me. So you have a fascinating chapter on the financial crisis. It starts with a story of your attendance at an investment banking conference in France back in 2005, you know, just as the bubble was really gaining momentum. Can you tell our listeners that story and what the experience taught you about finance and risk? Well, basically, the story starts in the spring of 2005 when I went to the European Securitization Forum, which was taking place down in the French Riviera. And I walked into a gigantic concrete hall and I thought, wow, I'm back in Tajikistan. Because in many ways, an investment banking conference is the modern financial industry's equivalent of Tajik wedding rituals, in the sense that you have a gigantic ceremony which pulls together a scattered tribe and enables them to reflect and reaffirm their social ties, but also most crucially, to reflect and reaffirm their shared cultural view through all types of rituals and both stated and unstated communications or verbal and non-verbal communications. And when I deconstructed the investment banking conference like a Tajik wedding, I noticed four things. Firstly, that the securitization bankers were essentially a bit of a tribe set apart. And they were because they spoke a language which almost no one else understood, which was not Tajik, but CDO speak. They used acronyms which were unintelligible to anybody else. A bit like the Latin that the priests in the medieval Catholic church used to use to each other that the congregation didn't understand. And that gave them power. And the group had a creation mythology um, which every single professional group in the world or social group has. And like any creation mythology, it was riddled with contradictions which weren't obvious to them at the time, precisely because they were a tribe set apart, speaking their own language. I mean, to give two tiny examples, their creation mythology was basically the cult of liquefaction, the belief that the whole point of this innovation was to create the perfect free market where everything was liquid. And they failed to notice that, for example, although they said they were creating ultra free markets where everything could be traded, the CDOs they were creating were so darn complicated, they weren't actually traded they were just basically created and then stuck on the balance sheet of some entity. So you didn't actually have free market prices. They were often priced with models. Or to cite another example, they said the whole point of this um, exercise was to reduce risk in the system, but the techniques they were using were so opaque that they were actually introducing more risk into the system. But that wasn't evident to people because as I say, it was a closed tribe with a rather sort of you know um, echo chamber mentality. And the other thing I noticed was that although they kept saying the whole point of this cult of liquefaction was to serve people, society, there weren't any pictures of faces ever in their PowerPoints. And the mental image they had of finance was one that was very abstract and full of Greek letters and algorithms and disconnected from real life. And there was a wonderful moment in the movie, The Great Short, based on Michael Lewis's book where a hedge fund trader goes out and actually meets a Florida pole dancer who's taken out four mortgages. And they're shocked that these mortgages are being used in really dangerous ways. And the thing that was shocking was not the fact that mortgages were being used like that, the fact that so few financiers actually had any connection with the end result of what they were producing. There was a lack of sense of context, of consequences, and the cultural patterns that were distorting the theories that they had about how it should work. 
So I came back from that and based on those four points, wrote a series of pieces starting in 2005 saying, well, this innovation is kind of nuts and it's going to end in disaster, which of course it did. But the key point is this, you know, what I did with the financial sector using this practice from Tajik wedding rituals to analyze it and see the risks isn't just about finance. You can use exactly the same intellectual toolkit to look at the tech sector, which I did, and that's helped me to see the rising tech clash, to look at business, government, medicine, almost any sphere. You know, there's a lot of truth in what you said. Complexity in finance, complexity is an enemy. And um, you don't even have to get to the CDOs and the CDO squared. And, and you just look at simple mortgage documentation, right? It, which isn't so simple. And uh, how often do people sign something they don't understand? Because there's not just a simple explanation of what the mortgage is, but there's, you know, there's legal disclosure, but it's so complex and it's so long that people don't understand it. Finance is a mystery to so many intelligent people that have, you know, are well-educated, but aren't versed in the mechanics of finance. And, you know, the fact that we have, uh, you know, I think many people aren't even economically literate. And then you take adding this complexity on top of it, it's a huge problem. But I'm going to switch gears here. One of the things, Jillian, that I really admire about you is your informed expert coverage of climate change and green finance. We've both got an interest in this area and you do a particularly good job of covering this topic. So in your book, you draw a link between anthropology and green finance. What's the connection? How can anthrovision help individuals, businesses and investors address an issue like climate change? Well, I think anthropology is very useful in relation to climate change in several ways. For me personally, as a journalist, one of the lessons from anthropology, which I've learned through covering the financial sector, is that it pays to look at what people aren't talking about, not just what they are talking about. And it also pays to try and look at the world through the eyes of the people we're writing about, not our eyes as a journalist. And that mattered for me writing about the world of green finance, because Back in 2015, 2016, I was being deluged with emails from people talking about ESG, environmental social governance. And I, as a journalist who's trained to be very cynical about good news, to assume that you know the really important things for the front page are always bad news and scandals, I assumed that ESG was kind of ridiculous. And it was basically companies trying to use PR spin, public relations spin, to cover up things. In fact, I used to joke that ESG should stand for eye roll, sneer and groan. And then one day I thought, well, listen, as an anthropologist, I've got to actually try to look at the world through other people's eyes and work out why they're sending all these emails. And I realized there was this really important zeitgeist shift going on, which wasn't being widely talked about, but people were reimagining their concept of how business and finance worked. Essentially, they'd spent the previous few decades using a very tunnel vision set of tools to look at the world with, you know, narrow models, economic models that excluded things that weren't in the inputs as externalities, narrowly defined balance sheets just focused on shareholders and profit and losses. And people begin to realize actually that was quite a dangerous set of tools to use to navigate the world with, because if you exclude externalities and social context and things outside your balance sheet or your models, 
you will often get you know tripped up if the context changes if societal expectations changes or environmental issues change i mean the image i sometimes use is that you know if you're walking through a dark wood at night with a compass you don't want to throw your compass away but if you just stare at the dial all the time and don't look up you're going to trip over a tree and economic models and balance sheets were like that compass so that zeitgeist shift was underway partly because of the 2008 financial crisis but also because of the rise of populism and a growing awareness of climate change so investors and businesses were widening the lens and looking more broadly at other things like esg topics so I thought, okay, well, we need to cover this at the FT. We need to realize that ESG is not just about activism. It's increasingly about risk management, although most companies don't frame it that way. So I went out and created this platform called Moral Money, which tries to cover the ESG world and climate change issues in relation to business and finance on a regular basis. And I guess the thing I realized in covering this, to go back to the anthropology, is that if you strip out what companies are doing and take out the acronyms like ESG, it's really about moving from tunnel vision to lateral vision, about looking at externalities like the environment, about recognizing that you need to have lateral vision for risk management. And at the end of the day, that's kind of what anthropology is all about, a desire to have lateral vision and to see things in context to look at the cultural patterns and the consequences of what people are doing. So Jillian, for those of our listeners who aren't as familiar with the term, ESG is environmental, social, and governance. And I believe there's a revolution going on, you know, a revolution in finance. It's really forcing and encouraging financial institutions to look beyond the simple parameters they've been looking at. And as you said, look at the externalities, look at more broadly because finance has got the power to be a, a force for good and for bad and it can play a significant role and what's the biggest thing you've learned since the debut of moral money do you see this ESG revolution gaining momentum well I think I've learned many things during moral money's experience one of the joys of being a journalist is that if you make yourself open to listening to people and colliding with the unexpected, you're going to be constantly surprised. And just to cite two or three examples, firstly, I didn't expect ESG to accelerate during the time of COVID-19. In fact, I initially thought it might knock it to the side because it would be seen as a luxury in a time of crisis. And I was 100% wrong. In fact, ESG, green finance, sustainability, whatever you want to call it, has spread very fast during the pandemic, partly because it's underscored to many companies, investors, the importance of social issues, but also because it's provided a wake-up call in the fact that it's dangerous to ignore science forever, and you can't ignore the fact that we're globally interconnected. So that's been one big surprise. Another surprise has been the degree to which you're now seeing really an across the board appreciation of green finance and ESG issues. I guess the third surprise is the fact that it's really permeating now into areas which never used to be involved in green activism, like accountancy. And I often joke that accountants are going to end up being the new green warriors perhaps even more than the kind of tie-dye wearing activists that I used to know when I was an anthropologist. 
And there's a lot of truth in that because one of the things you need to do is you need to keep score, right? And the markets are going to, you know, increasingly look at the disclosures that companies make and say, are these real or are they greenwashing? And it's going to take some, you know, you're going to have to trust but verify, and it's going to take some clear accounting. Now, Jillian, your career has taken a number of twists and turns. What advice would you give to our younger listeners who are trying to navigate their careers today, you know, in today's world, which is a time of real change? Well, I would give them really two pieces of advice. One is something, an idea I once borrowed from Sheryl Sandberg, which is that we don't really have clear-cut career ladders anymore, although that was the image that used to dominate in the sort of middle to late 20th century. It's more like a jungle gym. You go up, you go round, you go sideways, you might take a bit of a jump across from one pillar to another, but it's basically something which is gloriously unpredictable and flexible for many people today. That can seem scary, but when you recognize that it's not a career ladder as such, it can also be very liberating and exciting. The second piece of advice I'd give is that many of the biggest breakthroughs I've made have been when things haven't gone to plan, when my plan A somehow hasn't worked out, you know, because of internal office politics or because of unexpected life events, et cetera, et cetera. And I've been forced to improvise with plan B. It hasn't always delivered great results, but often plan B has taken me somewhere that I couldn't even imagine or expect. And it's enabled me to be a lot more creative with that jungle gym mentality particularly if you can bring together different strands of your life and try to act as a bridge between different information sets or different worlds. So those are the two bits of advice I'd give probably most of all. I think that's great advice. You know, one of the things that I've learned is human beings don't like change. We all say we need to embrace change. We need to look to the future, be flexible, but we don't like change. But when we're forced to change, it can have some terrific results. And even if things don't work out the way you'd like them to work out, you'll learn a lot as you're challenged. And so change can be a real force for good. There's one more idea, which is very important I'd add into that, which really cuts the core of my book. And it picks up on your point about change, which is that human beings don't like culture shock either. Nobody likes being forced to confront a set of ideas and way of living and thinking, which is different from theirs. But the reality is, and this really is one of the absolute core messages of my book, Anthrovision, that culture shock is good for two things. Firstly, if you embrace culture shock and try and see the world through different eyes, you learn how other people think and live. And that is critical in a world that's both globalized and very polarized. But there's a win-win because trying to embrace culture shock isn't just about learning to get empathy for how other people think and live, which is critically important. It's also about learning to see yourself clearly because there's this wonderful Chinese proverb that a fish can't see water. And none of us can see the cultural assumptions that shape us unless we jump out of our fishbowl, go and swim in other fishbowls or ask the fish in other fishbowls what they think of us. So anthropology really can be a win-win, not just for companies, and I'd say countries, but your individual lives as you try and navigate your own career. Jillian, thank you. Uh, this has been really terrific. 
you've given some of us without an anthropological background a new perspective. And I, for one, look forward to continue reading your Moral Money columns on green finance and sustainability. So thanks a lot. And thank you for your interest. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.